Welcome to the King's Chapel, Alaska podcast. From wherever you are listening, we are so excited that you tuned in today. Let's prepare our hearts to hear from God's Word. Great to be at King's Chapel today in Wasilla. I, I got to tell you, and, and before I go anywhere with this, can I just explain why I'm sitting down? Uh, I am a contractor with the Department of Defense, and I travel throughout the Middle East, Saudi Arabia, Kuwait, Oman, Qatar, United Arab Emirates, Afghanistan, Iraq, Bosnia, so Kosovo, Syria, North Africa, South Korea, Japan, Okinawa, you name it, if there's troops, that's where I go. But in 2010, I jumped out of a helicopter in Iraq, and my feet went off under me wrong, and I hit so hard, shattered six vertebrae, and I went paralyzed. My left leg ceased to function. So I was on braces for two years. And I remember at the, about the end of the second year, I, I took the brace off in the name of Jesus. I took my first step and fell right on my face. <laughs> so I put the brace back on in the name of Jesus. Uh, tried again later, and same results. But third time it worked. And, uh, but I don't do steps very well, and I can't stand very long. But I'm 74, but I'm going on 50. 50 is the new 30. And if you're in a common core, you can lie and believe it. <laughs> I'm 21. <laughs> now, my brain says I'm 21. My body says I'm 91. So I average it out, and it comes out about 74, I guess. But here's the bottom line. I'm happy, and I'm thrilled to be able to be here today. And they're still writing my contracts all over the world, sending me to work with our troops. I've been at um, Jay Bear this week. And I have many, many stories I can tell you. We could spend days, weeks, talking about the wonderful experiences that God's allowed me to enjoy working with our magnificent troops, for which today I put on a few medals to honor 13 who gave their lives for our freedom in Afghanistan. And I could go off on that for a while, but I'm going to try to keep politics out of this. But I want to tell you, there are, there's no greater heroism than those who will follow commands even when those commands they know are wrong. And that loyalty and commitment to leadership and authority is what makes our military special. And I just want to tell you, on behalf of those 13 today, uh, we, we all want to show our respect and love to their families. Amen. So I, I put on a little decoration just to remember them. And to remind myself... Uh, of the sacrifice for our freedom. Freedom is not free, and it's so such an overused statement that it is almost ludicrous to say it, but it has to be said. No one really ever knows the price of freedom. What would a life lost on the battlefield ultimately have brought into the human race had it had the privilege to be lived out? That is the unknown. We'll never know the price of freedom. All we know is the product of it, and boy, is it fun to be free. Is it great to be free? And the day we lose it, we'll never live long enough to see it back again. So we have to protect it and be good stewards, whether it's an old car that God gave us to be good stewards of to give us a better car, or a nation that God gave us freedom to be good stewards of to give us greater freedoms. Because if we don't respect and honor those that gave that freedom to us through their life, and their life's blood. God will not entrust us with freedom in the future. we got to remember that. Amen. Amen. That said, uh, I sound like I'm really loud. Am I? Is it okay for you? I'm okay. Uh, so I'm sitting down because uh, I'm more comfortable doing that. And sometimes I just stand up because I get excited. And if I do, and I try not to fall off the platform. <laughs> That's always embarrassing. Every time that ever happens. Uh I know I have to make a statement here, and uh, I'm going to try to do this and set it aside afterward, but, uh, uh, you know, in our life, we, we have things that are very precious to us that sometimes we lose. Uh, I lost my identity on a riverbank in Vietnam uh, many years ago. Uh, 60 surgeries and 50 years later, they're still trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again. Uh, I just got a nose uh, four and a half years ago. They made my nose, and I'm so proud of it. It's a boy. <laughs> Isn't it cute? Uh, 
They made me eyelids, and they made me lips, and they released my neck so that before my chin was pulled down by by constriction and contraction of the skin that was so damaged, and my mouth was inverted, I drooled all the time. And that was, uh, that was very embarrassing. Well, they've released all that, and with all these new parts, the parts they didn't replace, I told them just leave it alone. It's my plastic ear. I love it. I, I have more fun with a plastic ear than I ever did the original. <laughs> I mean, can you take your ear off and leave it and see what people say about you when you're gone? <laughs> so you see, it fell off when I was preaching in Jamaica one year. I was there. 10,000 people, and they all do the same thing. They're covering their mouth, wide-eyed, sucking air like a hoover and pointing at me. So I did whatever man does, check his fly. Something's wrong here. Well, my fly was fine. I look around, and out of the corner of my eye, I saw my ear. It was laying on my shoulder. Peeled off like a wet Band-Aid, laying on my shoulder. You can't ignore it. They're not breathing. You're about to have Jonestown without the grape Kool-Aid. I grabbed my ear, and I dried the sweat, and I stuck it back on. It got worse. They thought it was a miracle, and they all got saved. And, and what's funny is that's a true story. They all came forward. I don't know if it's to see Jesus or to see my ear. But they came forward, and I check it every now and then just to make sure it's not falling off. So with that said, I've lost other things. Uh, I remember whenever I got married, I married my junior high school sweetheart. Uh, I was 16 when I asked her to marry me. She was 13 when she slapped me. <laughs> and she had a pretty good right hook too, I'll tell you that. Uh, she waylaid me. I'm only 13 years old. I said, but you have the body of a 14-year-old. <laughs> she slapped me again. And really, it's called TMI. You know what? That too much information. I used the word body, and she didn't appreciate it. Extremely conservative girl. Uh, we were both virgin when we married. No thanks to me, because she was far stronger than me. But I was a typical preacher's kid, possessed with the urge to merge, and she was not. And she cooled my jets, along with help from her dad. And <laughs> so we waited. And now when I tell that story in public schools, Girls give me standing ovations. Boys salute in a peculiar way. <laughs> but if we don't stand for something, these kids will fall for anything and everything. Amen. So I tell the honest story about the first guy tried to take my wife away from me because when we got married, we were very young. She worked for Allstate Insurance. Allstate. Say Allstate. Allstate. Now, Allstate's a great insurance company. And she had a good job with them. But her associate, her co-worker, knowing she's married, had the wedding ring on, knowing her husband's fighting on the other side of the world for his freedom, but not his freedom to put her in his good hands. He tried to take my wife. I got even with him. I buy state farm insurance. And then there was, after I was injured, my medic who tried to take my wife. He was funny. He really thought he could take my wife while I'm in the hospital. Right there under his very nose, he's trying to take my wife. Well, one night I feigned I was dying, and I started hyperventilating intentionally. I set off the alarms. He came running in, got his ear down close enough to hear me mumble, 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 and I bit him. I bit his ear so hard. Through my clenched teeth, I said, you touch her, I'll kill you. What am I going to do, choke him with a hose that's in my nose? <laughs> Scared him so bad, he left that ward and never came back. And then I get out of the hospital, and we went back to college, and her professor, tried. he brought her flowers. I thought the student brought the apple. The professor brought the flowers to my little wife. Now, I never met him, never even saw him, but he saw me one day with my one eye, one ear and one nostril, smooth skin over here, no ear, no skin, no, I mean, no eyelid, just smooth skin. That looked horrible. He figured if I survived, the other guy didn't, and he didn't want to be that other guy. <laughs> never met him, but never saw him again either. And then finally, and I'll stop here, there's the fourth guy. Now, he was really different. He, uh, 
he made her promises that I couldn't even keep. And he loved her really, really did. I mean, that was the difference. He really did love her and uh, gave her gifts and stuff that I couldn't compete with. And he, he took her. And it really broke my heart. But I got his name where he lives. I did. His name's Jesus. And he took her to his place. But he said, I could come there too. I get to see her again one day. And when she got there and saw him, I think her first two words were, Dave, who? <laughs> She's happy. She's good. And since then, I've grown much more in the Lord. And I've learned that my first calling wasn't to be married. It was to minister. And I went back to that first calling with a, a vehemence, I'll use that word, vehemently returning to that first love. And I've never felt such an anointing, a passion, and a product of ministry that I've experienced since her passing. And uh, I even mentioned this morning, I, I'm not Catholic, but sometimes I feel like I ought to be because I almost believe in intervention of the saints in heaven because sometimes I think it got better when she got there. She's tugging on Jesus, sleeps in Jesus. Afghanistan later, Dave needs you right now. I think that. Can't prove it, but it's all right. I don't have to. I can still think it. And it's okay. So today I'm not here and you're not here alone. The Bible says we're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. If there's not something to witness, why is there a cloud of so there's something to witness, and I believe that the eyes of Texas are upon us and the eyes of heaven are upon us. I believe that God is with us, and today in this very room, at this very moment, Jesus is in this house. He is the comforter. He is the healer. He's our rock. He's our fortress. There's a thousand names for him, but the one I love most, the one I love the most, the one that will always be dearest to me is that one Savior. So I'm not going to heaven to see Brenda. I'm not going to heaven for streets of gold. That's interesting. He paved the streets of what we lust and murder for. Isn't that interesting? Maybe we have 14 karat concrete. Amen. Even Jesus had a band to go with that one. Uh Maybe we have concrete or asphalt necklaces. And you see my point. I'm ridiculing the fact that he would pave and make, make gates out of a single pearl big enough to make. Can you imagine the oyster big enough for that kind of pearl? You see, none of those things are the reason I'm going to heaven. They can be pearl or plastic. And it's not Brenda. It's Jesus, Savior of my soul, who loved me enough to give himself for me so that one day, loving me enough, he gave himself to me. That's why I'm going to heaven. But to get there is the great prize. That's the great challenge. That's the great reward. That's the great get up out of bed reason in the morning. There's books written by, by a guy that are called the Purpose Driven Series, Purpose Driven Church, Purpose Driven Life. I guess maybe even Purpose Driven Car. I don't know. But purpose is not enough for me. Oh, Brother Dave. Yeah, you can get up on purpose and go to work for McDonald's every morning. You see, I'm writing a book called The Passion-Driven Purpose because if you get up on purpose, you don't get bed sores but laying there and die again green. You can just get up on purpose and go to work at McDonald's. But on passion, you can get up and go to the McDonald's you own. It's supposed to be the best franchise in the world. I don't know, but I'd rather have Chick-fil-A, I guess. But the point is, you can own it or you can work for it. I'd rather own it. You see, I don't want to work for Jesus. I want to own the ministry he gave me because he asked me to work with him. And that is my life. And that's our calling. And so I, I got to thinking about my life. And I'm going to share a little bit of that with you today. And uh, if, if I can pull this off without it sounding like he can't talk without talking about himself, today I, ask, I beg your forgiveness because 
I'm not going to use the illustration of Peter, James, and John, or Peter, Paul, and Mary for all I care. I want to talk about what Christ did for me because it is personal. Jesus is a personal Savior, personal. So if you're here today and you're not accustomed to all this worship and, and singing and clapping and praying and, and a guy sitting here talking to you about religious things that maybe are a little different and have some and I'm really not emotional. You'll find today I'm not emotional. I'm allergic to the carpet. makes my eyes water up occasionally. We'll get through that. But I do want you to know something. If you do not understand a personal relationship with this Savior, Jesus Christ, my prayers today before you leave, you understand what I'm talking about firsthand. That's why we're here. That's what following Christ is all about. He that winneth souls is wise, and I want to be wise. And the highest call of ministry is not to be a preacher, it's to please the Lord. And for thy pleasure they are and were created, the writer of Hebrews wrote. We're created to please the Lord. It pleases the Lord that I'm an evangelist. It pleases the Lord that you're a church member or pleases the Lord you work for Exxon or whatever you do. If you're walking in that relationship with Christ, fulfilling the call in your life, which not everybody's called to preach, but we are called to live the light and the life and the salt that Christ is. All of us are called to that. And his will. Some say, how do you know the will of God? How do you not know the will of God? It's written for you. Straight, plain, clear, undeniably truth. And it is not his will that any should perish. But it is his will, friends, that all should come to repentance. So we know it's not his will that you perish. It is his will that you come to repentance and knowledge of Christ. So I know the will of God for my life. Win souls. That's your will. That's his will for your life too. And so in my career, in my lifetime, I've had that challenge from the time I was a little boy. I was born to a woman that when I was born, my life started, her started ending. She died from my birth, but it took decades. She lived to be 70, curled up in a fetal position in a nursing home at 68 pounds, fed through a tube. She couldn't even feed me when I was born. Had a Mexican nanny, Maria Rubio. I learned how to roll my R's. She taught me Spanish before I learned English. I was six years old when they told me I had to learn English to go to school. I was six years old when they told me I was not a Mexican. <laughs> Blew my Hispanic mind. How am I not a Mexican? Every friend I had was Mexican. My language was Mexican. How can I not be a Mexican? That was the first time in my life of self-discovery to find out I wasn't what I thought I was. And many times since then, I have come to an understanding I was not what I thought I was. And until you've had that moment of self-discovery, you can never be what you ought to be until you find out you're not what you thought you were. Because when we find out what we are, sometimes it's humiliating and embarrassing. Simon Peter had that occasion. I remember when Jesus said, hey, guys, pray for me. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Peter said, are you kidding me? This is Peter you're talking to. 1-800-P-E-T-E-R. Call me if you ever need me, Jesus. I'll be right there. Well, why don't you watch and pray? He went to sleep. Wake up, Peter. Jesus, don't worry. I got you covered. I'm all right. I'm, I'm, I'm okay. And he went right back to sleep. Well, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. Not me, not me. At the job of a server girl, the crowing of a rooster and prediction and prophetic terms of Jesus about how Peter would behave, Peter cursed him at the job of a server girl and the crowing of a rooster. And it's so embarrassing because when he had done that, he turned and Jesus was standing right there. You ever been talking about somebody and they walk up on you? Isn't that embarrassing? Oh, I think it might rain today. Peter was so embarrassed, he went over the Bible, says he sat down on the steps of that porch, put his chin in his hands and wept bitter tears that dripped through his fingers when he realized he wasn't the man he thought he was. I've been there so many times. So many times. And I think I'm strong. I'm reminded of my weakness because I'll face something I can't handle on my own. And I remember I'm not the God. He's the God. I'm just the servant of the Most High King, the Most High God. I'm a servant. And it's humiliating and humbling when I realize 
I can't provide for myself. I have to ask them to open the water bottle because I, my fingers are so bad I can't grip. My hands don't work very well. Now, sometimes they're, I can get it, but I don't like to try up here in front of you and then spill it and water going everywhere. So I, I realize I'm not the man I used to be. I'm not. I stick on all my spare parts, and I got a lot of them. I used to put them on the bed and say goodnight to Brenda. <laughs> I was in the other room. So I guess what I'm trying to tell you is if today we can discover we need Jesus, but Jesus does not need us. will be the beginning of a new walk with Christ of self-discovery. He doesn't need us. Then why are we here? Because he wants us. I would 10,000 times be, rather be, be wanted more than needed. Because if my wife needed me, that would be a change. Oh, Brendan, if, you, if, you, if I don't have you, I'm just going to kill myself. Well, okay, I don't love you, but I'll stay with you so you don't kill yourself. What kind of relationship would that be? See, she wanted me, and that's what kept me true to her. I wanted her, so what kept me true, her true to me. Our relationship was built on desire, not need. Sounds crazy because we are so flippant to say, oh, I need you, I need this, I need that. When really we don't need most of what we say we need, but we need Jesus. But just for the record, I want him more than I need him. Is that possible? Yeah. And I need him desperately. But I want him even more desperately. I want him in every decision I make, in everything I do, in every heartbeat, in every breath, in every thought. I want Christ to be foremost and first, not Dave. So as I speak today and I speak of myself, please understand the end of what I say will explain more the beginning. Because today, if I were to take this and say, wow, what a plastic bottle. Isn't it awesome? A glorious plastic bottle. That's kind of stupid, isn't it? Problem is you really can't get rid of it. It seems it's like bubble gum. You chew it, then you throw it away and step on it. Then it's on your shoe, then you can't get it off to you. How do you then it's stuck on your hand. Then why you, well, you chew it again, I guess. I don't know what you do with it. You can't get rid of it. You know, it's this old body that's the met. We get it. It gets all the attention, but it's the least of value of our trinity. Body is less than soul. Soul is less than spirit. And we give the spirit the least. It's always body, soul, and spirit in order of priority. It should be spirit, soul, and body in order of priority. A few lessons I've learned I want to share with you through the things I've experienced. Because the things that we suffer, we learn from. Even Jesus learned obedience through the things he suffered. So in my lifetime, I've known a little bit of suffering, but it's not about suffering. It's about learning. Everybody gets hurt, and that's not the question. It's not the question, will you get hurt? It's when you get hurt, how are you going to deal with it? Is it going to be, okay, God, what can I learn from this? Or, why me, God? Don't do that. What if he answered you? I don't know, George, or just something about you I don't like. <laughs> if your name is George, that was purely accidental. You're good. It's all right. He loves you anyway, Georgie. So my point is this. I want to learn through the things I suffered. And if I've learned something that can give you that learning without having you go through suffering to learn it, then I saved you a little grief. So why reinvent the wheel? These are a few things I learned. And I learned it well. First of all, I want you to know I'm very patriotic. I love my country, and I'm proud of my scars and stripes. Did you get that little play of words? And by the way, I forgot to mention I have some material. I, I hope I don't forget to do that. Somebody remind me at the end if I forget to do that. I want to remind you, but I want to do it now. So I learned that uh, to be grateful for our freedom was something I was, I was taught from my childhood. And I've always grown up to be very, very patriotic, love America. And to this day, when people do things that show disrespect, uh, especially for the flag, the flag itself is nothing more than material and dye and ink and thread and all that. It's what it represents. It's what it represents. And in Vietnam, I was on a little riverboat made of fiberglass. It was the fastest boats in the military. And I was to, uh, I, I was a SEAL transport. I was a brownwater black beret. And my job was attached to SEAL Team 1 in a, to get them in and out of battle. And we had the highest killed in action per capita. And one time we came off a of patrol, and above my head on that boat was a little flag about this big. 
you know, stuck up on a little stanchion, and and I was sometimes on the forward guns, which were twin 50 calibers, or on the middle midship, it was called, even though it wasn't a ship, it was only a 30-foot fiberglass boat, but there were two M60s there, and those M60s stood on a pedestal, and you didn't sit behind them, you stood behind them, and this high above my head flew that little flag flipping and flapping in the breeze as that boat went down that river and they're shooting at us. One day we came in off patrol after a big firefight and I was taking off the guns and getting them clean and then I went to take down the flag and when I did, my heart just stopped. There were about four or five, six little holes in that flag where bullets had gone through that this far above my head. And I looked at that flag and I said, little flag, you took a, you took a hit for me today, thank you. And every time I see people who can't so much as even show respect for what that flag has meant to some of us, they never took a hit for the flag. And I did one day. And when I took that hit for that flag, it made me love her so much more. So I'm very patriotic. The other thing about Dave you should know is even more than patriotism, more than I love my country, I love my God, and I'd rather be an ice chipper in Siberia and know Christ than to be the richest man walking free in America and not know Christ. And I mean that with all my heart. I've lived long enough to live out that truth because money can't buy you peace of mind when you close your eyes at night. And the images imprinted on the retina of my memory from those days in that war that most people find healing or solace temporarily through drugs or alcohol or violence or sex or uh, whatever, I found permanence through knowing Christ who set me free from the bondage of sin and death, the bondage of it. And it's bondage to be controlled by the past that you cannot change. It's bondage. So I can't change the past because I'm not a revisionist. I don't change the past into a lie and then be stupid enough to believe it. Revisionists do that. Their IQ is about as much as their middle finger. And I'm telling you, I don't have time for revisionists. They're liars to the core. And the Bible says, do not remove the landmarks. That's Bible. And it's said throughout the Old Testament. So in my lifetime, I've learned to love my country and more so to love my God. And both would be challenged in the experience of life. One day I opened my post office box at Bible College where I was studying to be a minister. You learn how to say like that in Bible. Minister. Praise, hallelujah. You learn how to tremble your voice. And when you pray, you change your voice. So God doesn't know who's asking for all that stuff, you know. <laughs> oh, my post office walked one day, and there's a letter from a very wealthy uncle that wanted me to take a trip for him. His name was Sam, and he wanted me to go overseas and fight in a place called Vietnam. <laughs> so I had to take a physical, which was the only exam I passed that whole semester of Bible college. I got an O-plus on the blood test. <laughs> Did you get Now, that right there is funny. I don't care who you are. They told me I was going to be inducted in the Army, and I didn't show back up. I wasn't a war protester. I just didn't want to get hurt in the Army, so I joined the Navy where I could be safe. You ever get up one morning and have a bad decade? I ended up in the Navy. And have never been on a ship to this day that I thought would be safe. Who's going to put a landmine on a battleship? And so I joined the Navy, and they sent me to a place called NAB, Naval Amphibious Base, Coronado, California. Three groups trained and are housed or based there. The Navy SEALs, the special dive vehicle teams, that's little two-man submarine teams, and the Brown Water Black Beret. And I was a brown water black break. Today, we're called special boat teams. And we drive the fastest boats in the world. It's an amazing thing what we are privileged to do. Two movies were made about us. One was called Apocalypse Now. And if you saw that movie, I hope you repented. That was nasty. But I saw it because of the boats. That was, that's the boats. I was on those little fast river boats. And then more recently, a movie called Acts of Valor. And both movies featured those little boats and what they did with the Navy SEALs. The first one, not so much the Navy SEALs, but was uh, very indicative of the type of firefight, but not for the cause. The whole cause of that, that movie was fictitious, although they say it wasn't, but it was. And so 
my job as a, a, a in the Navy was very exciting, but it had its cost. I touched on it, and I'll repeat it. We had the highest killed in action per capita. Now, what that means is, on a percentage basis, more of our guys were killed doing what we did than any other group in the military. But you can't prove it, because when the boats being made of fiberglass were hit, they sank, the bodies went down with the boats, and if a body is not recovered, you're not killed in action, even though they know you're dead. You're MIA, missing in action for years. And so, when I kissed my little sweet wife goodbye at the airport, my brand new bride, a little teenage sweetheart, when I kissed her goodbye, I had to be strong. I had to be the man for this girl because I'm so much tougher. <sighs> Don't buy the lie, boys. That's why God gave childbirth to women. <laughs> that baby hurt me like that. I'd kill that little sucker. How dare you hurt me like that? <laughs> that was funny, wasn't it? I, I don't think I ever said that before, but I'll keep that one. And so I kissed her goodbye without a tear. I walked away until she called my name. She said, Davey, and I stopped. And when I turned around, tears rushed over the dam of my lower lids against all my resistance, and I couldn't stop them. In my anger of my own weakness, I said, what? And this is the question she asked me that haunts me, even to this day. Davy, are you coming back? A few months ago, I asked her, baby, are you coming back? She said, no. I was so smart. I said, I'll be back without a scar. Where did that come from? I could have just said, I'll be back. <laughs> Then I could be governor of California. <laughs> so I said, I'll be back without a scar. And boy, when I said it, I knew I made a promise I couldn't keep. And I walked away with the salt of her tears on my lips. And I wondered if I'd ever see her again. Unfortunately, I was predictive in a way. I did come back, but not without the scar. On July the 26th, 1969, yes, teenager, right after the War of 1812, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> Kids, youth is wasted on the young. I didn't say that first, but it sounds appropriate there. Yeah, I came back, but I wasn't the man she married. A hand grenade made of white phosphorus seemed the right weapon for the moment. Two day, three days earlier, on the 26th, 23rd of July, 1969, I took my first injury after eight months in Vietnam. Not a scratch, but on the 23rd of July, I was injured the first time. Three days later, I was released from the hospital and put right back on the river. No recovery out of the hospital. I was released and sent right back on patrol because there was no one to replace me. And if I wasn't replaced or any one of our team were not replaced, the team couldn't go out. You have to go out with full complement, which was a total of four people per boat, two boats per team. So eight people. You can't go with seven, and you can't go with three on one boat. So on the third day, they said, you're back on the river. They sent me right back to the exact place I'd been injured three days earlier. And it was to do intelligence reports, and that's the intelligence report that's the dumbest one you'll ever make. And that's because you know they booby trap everything. So I got back, and I beached the boat. And I reached down and I picked up a white phosphorus hand grenade, the weapon of choice, because I could throw it and it would not put shrapnel back on me, but I could outthrow its return of fire, which literally is about 60 meters from the, from the center. I threw it as far as I could, the first one. I drew the second one and drew back. I didn't know I was in the crosshairs of a sniper. And he squeezed off around shooting at my head. And the bullet hit my hand as I drew back, and it blew the grenade right here. 5,000 degrees, white hot, fairing hot, fairing height, white hot heat. Twice the engine, twice the, the temperature necessary to melt the engine out of your car. And when I drew back, it blew right here. I went blind in my eye, deaf in my ear, blew my hair off. I got my ear, as you already heard, got my vision back, got my eyelids back. 
got my hair. Well, it's not my hair. I, I bought it. It's my hair, but there's a bald guy in Wuhan. <laughs> so I got several things out of there, <laughs> along with COVID. But God, <laughs> God spared my life that day. I jumped in the water. To my amazement, ask anybody in the military or with military history in here, you cannot extinguish phosphorus with water. It has to burn itself out. It supplies its own oxygen as a byproduct of its burning. So it burns itself out, and that's the only way it can put it out. Now they have something, but they didn't have it back then. Now put that fire out. And whenever I was hit, it covered half my body. 50, uh, 50% and 60 pounds of flesh was gone like that. I weighed 190 that morning. The doctors estimated, when they weighed me that night, they estimated within five minutes or less, I had lost 60 pounds. I weighed 130 pounds that night. And that's keeping both arms and legs. And I didn't lose this ugly 25 pounds of fat called a head. So I survived the blast. I survived the fire. But it left its indelible mark the rest of my life. And I jumped in the water. To my amazement, phosphorus burned in the water. I swam, and my skin was everywhere, still burning, floating away. I was beside myself. That's called comic relief or just being gross. <laughs> I needed to pull myself together. <laughs> if you're in junior high, you love it, being gross. So... I crawled up on the bank of the river. Now, so far, you hadn't heard me say anything about pain because I didn't have any. I was in shock, but the water forced consciousness on me. I never passed out, but I didn't feel anything. I was on my knees. I saw the damage. These three fingers and thumb were hanging by tendons, and I was pumping blood out of an open artery. These don't work. My left thumb was gone. They made that out of my hip. I don't suck my hip. <laughs> I couldn't see my face except what was on my boots at the initial explosion, and that was an estimate. I didn't know it was gone. Everything not covered was gone to the bone. Everything covered was burned by my, by my, my clothing, and it was second degree because the water put the fire out on my clothing because of my head and my body shadowed this part, and it didn't get phosphorus, but it set it on fire from the heat. And so everything covered grew back without grafting. It was called a second degree. And there were enough granulations of skin to grow back. It took a long time, but it did without, without a lot of gravity. But everything not covered. And that comes down through here, everything down to my waist. My back, my arms, my hand, my fingers, everything's gone. The skin is. And some of the parts gone. I looked at, at my hands on the bank of that river, and I just fell over backwards. It's so overwhelming. And they thought I died. And it went through my chain of command that I went, they went all the Pentagon that I was killed in action and they were so bad they had a body they could prove I was KIA. But when the helicopter called the dust off landing and picked me up, they thought I was dead. They rode me on the stretcher. I caught the stretcher on fire. When they ran, it ripped open. I fell through on my head. You ever have one of those days? <sighs> they got me wrapped up, rolled up in a wet blanket on another stretcher and in the helicopter and that's when the pain hit, and I cannot find a word in any language to describe it. So I won't even try. But I can tell you, it made me scream out, medic. And the medic who thought I was dead almost died. He jumped out halfway out of the helicopter. The pilot lost control. We're dropping like a rock, and I thought, oh, Lord, we're going to crash, and I'll be the only survivor. <laughs> they got me to Saigon and then to Japan. And I stupidly asked for a mirror, and they stupidly brought it. And when I saw it was left, I knew there wasn't a teenage girl on face here who still love a monster like that. And I decided to take my life. And I want to tell you right now, suicide's not the solution. But I knew if, they, if I took my life, they would, they would no way send home a living soul. If I took my life, they would not open the casket. She would never see the promise I had made that I had broken. I was mutilated and would be scarred the rest of my life, and I didn't want her to know what I looked like. So I pulled the tube out. I had no gun or knife. I just pulled the tube out, 
laid my head back and waited to die. And I got hungry. <laughs> Wrong tube. <laughs> you can die that way, but it's going to take a while. Because that was not my life dripping. on the, That was my lunch. And those doctors, they, 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 if I've ever been chewed out in my life, all my chewing out does not compare to what they did that day. There were new holes in me I didn't have to start with. They just ripped me and told me all the reasons why it was so wrong for me to take my life. But I was in a dark place. And see, the problem is when you stare into the darkness too long, the darkness stares back into you. Don't let the darkness stare back. We've all looked in the abyss. Don't stay there. Don't look too long. Don't give suicide a second thought. That second thought will kill you. Some of you in this place right now have thought of suicide so many times. Stop it right here, right now. Why play into the hands of the enemy that will dance on your grave? And the people that love you and that you love will be the ones that will hurt the rest of their lives and may even drive them to the brink that you would not return from. Don't do it. Back away. Lift your heads. Look up. Your redemption is drawing nigh. You're going to be okay. Don't do it. Look what I would have lost. The 53 years with that girl. The amazing experience of ministry I've had all these years preaching the gospel around the world. Being called by the military to serve our troops all over the world. Not because I'm good looking. I know that. It's not because of my mighty military strength. I have to sit down to talk. It's not because of my academic achievements. I was in the top 10%, but it was the lower one-third of my class. I majored in math and found out five out of four people don't even understand fractions. If you didn't understand that, you were in my class. You know the problem with you people? You catch everything I say. <laughs> I love it. It's fun to speak to a church that's alive. You don't just hear, you listen. And I love it. Give the Lord a clap offering this out. Woo! What a morning. I got to wind this thing down. I, I got to be thoughtful of the second service coming up. But I do want to finish well. So they got me to America. And they put me at Brook Army Medical Center. And I was there for a year and two months in my initial stay. 60 surgeries later, I'm still a patient. My last surgery was just before March of last year, uh, March of COVID, uh, they call it. So uh, I've had three more since then. But if it doesn't last two hours and they don't put me to sleep, I don't count it as surgery. It's a procedure. I can show you the pictures of operation number 50, and I shared it with Pastor, but I won't share it with you. It would gross you out. Operation number 50 was so stunning. They rebuilt my face. They actually offered me a, a different face from a cadaver until I saw it, and he was uglier than me. <laughs> they said, what happened to your face? I said, what happened to his mother? <laughs> Lord, you know you're ugly when you're born. They slap her. <laughs> I don't think they beat her with an ugly stick. I think the whole tree fell on her. She, he was ugly. All that said, you're probably saying, how can you laugh about it? Why not? The devil took his best shot, folks. I'm still here because no weapon formed against me can prosper. <laughs> Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. We're more than conquerors through Christ. Wow. So I laugh in the face of the enemy who laughed at what he thought was my demise. It was my deliverance. I learned to lean on Jesus. And I've never stopped leaning on him. I saw a bumper sticker once that said, lean on Jesus before he leans on you. <laughs> mm, I never forgot that one. So I want to close with the two events that follow. I'm going to reverse them in order of sequence. The last event was actually the first I'm, that I'm going to talk about. And the first was the last. So the last event I want to talk about first was when they put me in the ICU, which I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know. Uh, 
you know, intensive care unit. I, we called the ICU death row. There were 13 of us in there. We were all expected to die. And in fact, of 13, I'm the only one that has not died. Every one of them died before I left the hospital. And the 13th obituary may never be written the way things are looking today. So with that said, they let visitors come in to see those of us on, quote, death row in the ICU, which later on I found out what that meant. When they put the robe on me, it doesn't come together. It's the ICU. <laughs> Gave me a whole new understanding of the draft. <laughs> <laughs> they have visitors come in. A woman walked over to the guy in the bed next to mine. He was 100% third degree in a flash fire. Got all of his skin, but no brain damage. I was 50% third degree and much of the rest second and first degree but I had TBI, traumatic brain injury from the explosion. And it was affecting my vital signs. Recovery was not likely, and I'm supposed to die. Well, this woman comes to see her husband in the bed next month. She looks at him. She took off her wedding ring and threw it on the bed. She said, you're embarrassing. I couldn't walk down the street with you. And she walked out. I'm laying there looking at the tubes. Why don't they mark them? Suicide tube, IV tube, food tube, blood tube. No, they're not marked, which is it's a guess. Before I could pull the tube, a teenager standing at the foot of my bed saying, this isn't my husband. My heart crashed right there. So when I didn't die, just heart failure. And the doc said, yes, it is, Miss Brenner. That's Dave. He walked her up to the head of the bed. And she looked into the eye that was not damaged. The eyeball was still there. This one turned gray, no eyelids, nothing. It was down it was just sitting in the black skull. All this had to be rebuilt. You have no idea the amazing doctors who have put Humpty back together the best they could. Amazing doctors. Gifts of God. But that day, they hadn't even started reconstruction surgery. They had only started pulling the dead skin off, and it was driving me insane. Oh, Lord, I'll get to that in the last moment. She looked in this and she said, Doc, it is. Someone said it. The eyes are the windows of the soul. She looked in that window and saw the furniture that she recognizes, all I can tell you. It's got to be him. She said, Doc, this is Dave. Then she bent down and kissed what was left of my face. The worst burned part of my body was my face. And she looked me in my good eye and she said, Davey, I just want you to know I really love you. Welcome home. And I said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. She said, why? I said, because I can never look good for you. I wanted to be that handsome young prince. I wanted to be the guy that came back without a scar. Now I'm a freak and a one-eyed monster. I'm sorry. She said, baby, you never were good looking. <laughs> Listen at you. Y'all are cold. <laughs> we both laughed. And laughing was so difficult. But that was the second event because what I'm going to tell you now was the first event. And this one really hurt. I told you the second first. Here's what happened. They brought me in on a big hospital jet from Japan to Lackland Air Force Base. And then they put me on a helicopter and flew me. And I have pictures of all this. If you ever want to see them, stop. I'll, between services, I'm going to try to go back and sign some books. I brought some books, and again, I've got to remind myself to mention that. Or one of you help me because I'll forget. Uh, they put me in a tank at Brook Army Medical Center to debrief me, and the room is called debriefment. We called it hell. So we went from death row to hell to death row to hell. They do this two times a day every day till they soften all the burned charred charcoals, what you turn to your skin. They can break it off. They can... Scissor it off, they can fillet you, and they did a lot of filleting. Let me tell you, I went insane. And one of the six that attended me that day, three on each side of the Hubble tank, like a giant bathtub with about eight inches of water. When you put, they put you in it, your body displacement raises the water to right to your face. You can still breathe, but they have most of your body where they can just splash water on it to soften that dead skin. They got to get it off or gangrene will develop and you'll die. It'll kill you. So, her hair was a little bit long, and she bent over. One of the six 
cutting, ripping, tearing. And I reached up with my left hand, even without my thumb. Those four fingers were strong, and atrophy had not set into my muscles yet. I grabbed her hair. I flipped her over that tank into the water, and I had her head down in that water. I was trying to kill that precious, beautiful little soul. I was trying to drown her because I thought, fight for your life. She's killing you. Defend yourself. And that old Navy training thing kicked in. Fight. And, of course, she was never at risk. Five of them had her out of there in a snap of a finger. Her hair was now infused with my skin. Her white uniform was pink with my diluted blood. I felt horrible. They said he's had enough, and I said he's had enough. They put me on a gurney and sent me down to death row. On the way, they put me on this gurney. had a wobbly wheel rattling on like a shopping cart at Walmart. Rattle, 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 rattle. Taking me off, and when you're hurting, everything makes you mad. And then the medic said what really made me mad. In the morning, we're going to do this again at 8.30. I said, no, you're not. He said, yes, we are. I said, no, you're not. I said, not you. The entire army's big enough to put me back in that tank. He said, then you'll die. Well, I didn't want to hear that anymore. I wanted to hear that wobbly wheel. I said, well, let's make a deal. I said, if you're going to do this to me in the morning, don't tell me. Surprise me. <laughs> so I told him. I said, if I knew you were going to do this first time, I wouldn't let you do it. They don't give you enough drugs to take that pain away. You take enough drugs to do that, you'll overdose and die. They got to keep you awake anyway. And so he said, well, what's the difference? I said, here's the difference. Now I'm going to lay awake all night, which I would have probably anyway from just the pain. I said, I'll be awake all night with multiple anxiety attacks, knowing at 830 you're coming to take me to hell. That's what I told him. Well, I was right. I didn't sleep. Next morning I heard that wobbly wheel announcing the arrival of the angel of pain. They put the gurney beside my bed and forgot to lock the wheels. What happened next, you've already predicted. When they swung me over, the bed moved. It separated first at the foot end, and trying to grab the, the bed, they dropped me, and bam, I went down at 45 degrees. I threw out my arms, and holding on to the, each, the bed on one arm and the gurney with the other, it separated, and I'm falling through the cracks of this hospital failure. And my life took a change. As big as finding out I wasn't a Mexican, I thought I was. He was six foot seven, I bet, 350 pounds of solid muscle because when he moved, cannonballs popped up on his chest, shoulders, <laughs> arms, cannonballs. I mean, he was perfect. He was bald. He was black. And his name was Rosie. Had a tattoo right there. Rosie. R-O-S-I-E. Rosie. He put one arm under the back of my neck, and I knew he was trying to help me. And I stiffened my neck and gave that forklift some leverage. And with his other hand, he picked me up like a feather, turned and no gurney for Rosie. He carried me down that long, long corridor to that place called hell. He lowered me into that torturous tank. And as they started stripping and ripping skin, I watched as he folded his arms and stepped back and leaned against the wall in the morning sun coming through that window, cast its golden hue on that beautiful ebony skin and streaks of fire of tears dripping on his arms and his lips were moving. Rosie was praying for me. He was praying for me. Just knowing somebody was praying, just knowing somebody cared, I buckled up under the strength. I held on. It was a gift from God. When I couldn't take any more and I grabbed him for a nurse's hair, they said, he's had enough. And I said, yes, again, yes, he's had enough. They said, Rosie, come. And no gurney for Rosie. He reached down and picked me up out of that filthy water. They dried his arms with terry cloth and dabbed my bleeding body. He turned, and as he walked away that day, all the way down that corridor, these are the words he said over and over and over. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. You'll be fine, big man. You'll see. You'll be fine. He got me to death row, lowered me against the air mattress, 
extracted those forklifts, turned and faced me, and with his giant paw reached up, pushed down a little tiny piece of hair that somehow I'd managed to survive. And as he stroked me in that hair, he said again, you'll be fine, big man, you'll see. You'll be fine. I looked up in the eyes of a man I'd never seen in my life. Those auburn eyes, I think, showed me Jupiter and Mars, the sun, the moon, the stars. Who is this Rosie? Then he did something I've never let a man do. Bent down and kissed my forehead. <laughs> Turned and walked away. Finished yet, Dave? Pretty close. If you'll fast forward 20 years. I'm speaking for the great state of Oregon Air National Guard, 4th of July event with 20,000 guests. And boy, give me a crowd like that, and I'm in heaven. I finished, and a lady walks up in a really beautiful outfit. It's, a, it's kind of a business suit. She's beautiful. Her hair is perfect, kind of a shortcut mixed with a little salt and pepper, they say. Probably 10 years, maybe 15 years maximum older than me. She says, you're Dave? I said, yes, ma'am, and I'm thinking at the back of the crowd, she's just identifying the speaker because there were no big screams. She said, that's your nickname. Your real name is David. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's not Bartholomew, duh. <laughs> you don't have to be a genius to know that. She said, but that's your middle name. Whoa, how did she know my middle name's David? You didn't know that. How did, I, I said, yes. She said, your first name is Milton. You're Milton David Reaver. I said, yes, ma'am. Who are you? She said, I'm the nurse you pulled into the tank 20 years ago. <laughs> I said, I'm so sorry. She said, I thought it was you. I just didn't recognize you with your clothes on. <laughs> Don't go to church with your nurse. It's embarrassing. I said, do you remember a guy named Rosie? If I tapped her on the head with a two-by-four, it was stunned her. She blinked, stepped back, came out of a trance almost. She said, I haven't thought of him in years. I said, do you know his real name? She said, all I remember is that tattoo. I said, that's him. She said, Ro I said, that's him, the Rosie tattoo. I said, do you know where he is? She said, I don't. I said, do you know where he came from? She said, I don't. I said, do you know when he came to Brook Army Medical Center? She said, yeah, when you did. When did he leave? She said, when you left. My friends all tell me it's the angel of the Lord camped around the mountain that fear even serving. <laughs> Maybe so, but can angels? <laughs> I thought they were all white like me. <laughs> I thought, who's angels? Do they have tattoos? And what idiot's going to think he can tattoo an angel? <laughs> That's my argument, hoping it's not an angel, because if he is, he's just on assignment doing what his commander told him. But if he's a man, he, he's on a mission. He's doing what he wanted to do, and he didn't care what rank I was. And when you're burned, <laughs> you're pretty rank. I stunk up the whole hospital. He didn't care what branch of service I served in. He didn't care what color I was. The only thing that mattered to him was he saw a guy falling through the cracks of life and he caught me in the fall and he carried me where I could not go on my own. He loved me when I hated myself. He encouraged me when I had no encouragement, was incorrigible. <laughs> He spoke words of hope into my life as he carried me. So what's my message to you today? It's really so simple. It's not the story of Dave Reaver. It's the water that's in that plastic bottle. It's really not much value as a bottle. But without the delivery system, how does the water get there? I'm asking you, be a rosy to somebody today. Carry. Carry them where they don't want to go or can't go on their own. Take them where they can be healed. Pick them up when they're down. Speak words of hope when they're hopeless. 
Love them when they're loveless. Do I make any sense to you? Be Jesus in the flesh, in Wasilla, in Alaska, in America, in the world. You see, the world is scared to death in the middle of a pandemic where the last bastion of hope, light, and salt, we are the rosies of this planet. We're the Jesus in the flesh. Fear not. He said, for I am with thee. Thank you for joining today's podcast. If God is impacting your life through this ministry, you can partner with us and give at kcalaska.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe to our channel and enjoy more messages like this one.